The reading of God's Word this morning comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Hear the Word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel that we have heard throughout our order of worship this morning, that we are forgiven and assured of our pardon that we have sung about. Um, It is in Christ alone that we stand. Father, we pray that as we sit beneath your word this morning, uh, that you would work among us. We are gathered together corporately to worship you, but individually we have each come through these doors and we're facing any number of things. We've come in any number of kinds of states. Some of us have come angry and and hurt, uh, feeling despair at this moment in our lives. Others of us have come through these doors very comfortable, Um, in fact, so comfortable that we fail to recognize how deeply we need you in all of life. Others come anxious and others full of doubts and skepticism. Father, wherever we come from this morning, we pray that underneath your word that you would reveal this morning that despite the differing symptoms in our lives, we really are all the same. Because all of us, each and every one of us, we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so we need to hear together the good news of the gospel, that though we are more broken than we could ever imagine, because of Jesus, we are also more loved and more accepted and more approved of than we could ever have dared dream possible. So, Father, we pray that you would take us to this good news this morning, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And our children, uh, ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church this morning. If you make your way to the back, um, you'll be taken to your class. Try to give a moment there in case there's a nasty spill running out. Um, On Sunday mornings, uh, we've been going through uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's been a series on this book of the Bible. And so far in chapters 1 and 2, Paul has told us a bunch of stories, really. Um, He's told us a story about his 
conversion experience, a story about his calling to preach the gospel, and and how he learned the gospel in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he told a story about a trip that he took to Jerusalem to meet with other apostles. And then he told us a story about how Paul and Peter uh, found themselves in a confrontation um, uh, over over the eating of clean and unclean food. And um, and you could actually say that this story of Paul and Peter's confrontation is continuing in the verses that we read earlier, uh, in verses uh, 15 to 21, um, because it's really a continuation of what Paul told Peter on that occasion. But here's the thing. I think you'll notice, if you read through this letter, that there is a significant shift that takes place by the time you get to verse 15. All of a sudden, Paul introduces a new terminology, right? Three times, just in verse 16, he throws out this word justification, this huge word that we haven't heard up until this point from Paul. And he starts, Paul starts giving us all this very technical gospel terminology that, that we really need to think through together this morning. And, and hopefully that doesn't frighten you from the beginning or, or even surprise you. Um, you. You know this, that all professional fields, they develop um, a technical terminology in order to talk about their particular areas of expertise. So, so the terminology is really shorthand, right? It's shorthand because the individual terms Stay with me. This is pretty boring now that I'm thinking about it. Um, But the individual terms, um, they compress and they hold together a summary of truth in those terms. So people in the medical profession use their own terminology, right? So if you're in your doctor's office and the doctor turns to the nurse and says, I need you to order a transesophageal echocardiogram, you better hope your nurse knows what that means, right? Right. And if you're in the banking world, right, you have your own terms, absorption, liquidity, bankruptcy, and lawyers have their own terminology as well, right? Injunction, jurisdiction, appellant, things like that. Um, Now, listen, if it's possible for you to have a conversation with your doctor or with your lawyer, um, even if it involves saying periodically, tell me again what that means. I'm not sure I understand that, what that word means. If you can have that conversation with your doctor or lawyer, then you can have this conversation with Paul this morning. Um, but just like those conversations with your lawyer, your doctor, your banker, whatever, they might stretch you because of their new terminology. Um, we need to stretch ourselves a little bit theologically this morning. Martin Luther, who Trace mentioned earlier in our service, um, 16th century theologian, he wrote that anyone who can judge rightly between the law and the gospel should thank God and know that he or she is a true theologian. Judging rightly between the gospel and the law is right at the core of both what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. And this gospel terminology is really what helps us to make those distinctions. And here's how, here's how I think the go- this gospel terminology will stretch us this morning. Not simply by being able to make intellectual distinctions. That's actually pretty easy. Um, the, and, this, and, and that's involved. Intellectual distinctions are involved in this. 
but actually bringing those distinctions into your life and practice day to day. That's where the real stretching occurs. See, as soon as Luther defined a true theologian, right, he confessed in the very next line that he often didn't know how to do it as he ought. Why were Paul and Peter in a confrontation to begin with? Because there was confusion about how to make these distinctions between law and gospel in practical, day-to-day living experience. And here's what I'm saying. If Martin Luther and Paul and Peter and James and John had to struggle to flesh out this gospel terminology, wouldn't it make sense that you and I would probably struggle with it too? And so that's what we want to struggle with this morning. You know, it may be rare and infrequent that you have to brush up on your banking or your legal terminology in your life. Um, But this gospel terminology, it doesn't just matter every day to you. It matters every moment of every day to you because what Paul is describing here is a whole new way of living, a whole new approach to life. So here are the gospel terms or phrases that I want us to consider in this passage this morning. First, the works of the law. Big phrase that Paul, Paul uses. Second, justification. And third, faith. So we're going to talk about those in turn. First, first term or phrase is the works of the law. Now, if you've been here over the past several weeks, um, you've heard a good bit about the Old Testament ceremonial or clean laws, right? Things like circumcision and eating clean and unclean foods like we talked about last week, right? But a lot of other laws were involved too, right? Laws about touching dead animals and menstruation and what clothes to wear and on and on. There's just a long, long list, dozens and dozens of laws. And that's been very important to our discussion of Paul's letter. And here's why. Because these, after Paul had proclaimed the gospel to these people and started these churches, these false teachers moved in after Paul. And they came into the Galatian churches and they started saying something like this. Paul told you about needing to believe in Jesus, and that's a good start in everything. You need that, they were saying, but if you want to know that you're clean, and if you want to be assured in your life that God accepts you and loves you, then there's this other list of laws that you have to keep in your life, these other rules. Jesus is good, they were saying, even necessary. But here's what they were saying. He is not enough by himself to make you beautiful before God. He's not enough to make you clean. And so Paul, he's been arguing against that, right? He's saying you don't need to add one little ceremony, one little rule, one little thing to Jesus. Jesus alone is enough to make you beautiful, loved, and accepted. But in this passage, Paul, here's what I want to see you to see in the shift here. Paul is suddenly speaking in much more general terms, right? All of a sudden, when he talks about works of the law in these verses, he is saying, not just ceremonial laws, he is saying there is no law anywhere There is no ceremonial, no judicial, no moral law, no law anywhere that can make you clean and righteous in God's eyes. So look at the beginning of verse 16. 
we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And we'll get, get to this more in the second point, but the word justify there, it can also be translated righteous. It, because in the Greek, it's actually the same word. And to your ears, that terminology might sound archaic and just very, very religious, but I want to assure you this morning that it is packed with contemporary relevance for your life. Righteousness or, or being righteous, that's not the Bible's way of just talking about how you are to be good in your life, right? To be righteous means to be square with. To be righteous means to be in a properly aligned relationship. To be righteous is to have absolute confidence in your life that you have a record that makes you fit for a relationship. And that's something we are all looking for every day of our lives and that we're trying to get. So why is Paul making this argument? Because he knows that the default mode of your heart and mine is to search for that righteousness through the works of the law. A few weeks ago, I watched the Golden Globes, um, which I don't often watch, but uh, I really wanted to watch it because I knew Ricky Gervais was doing it, and I thought he would say some pretty crazy things. So, um, but anyway, I was glad I watched it because during the show... Uh, Jim Carrey came up to make a presentation of an award and the nominees and all that kind of stuff. Maybe some of you saw it too, and it's Jim Carrey, so as you would expect, it was funny, right? And he came out and he said, the first thing he said was, he said, he got to the mic and he said, I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, right? And then he said, you know, when I go home and I go to sleep at night, (laughs) I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And immediately, you know, the audience just starts picking up on this sarcasm, and they're following with him. And then he said, and when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. He said, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. And so at this point, Everyone in the room, you see as the camera's pan, everybody's laughing, everybody's right there with him, and he moves in and goes for the jugular, right? And he says, because then I would be enough, right? It would finally be true. And he says, and I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know won't ultimately fulfill me. And then he got to the nominees by saying, But these awards, they're a big deal. Um, And, you know, that's the genius of comedy, right? It it disarms you on its way to hitting you square between the eyes, to allow you to see truth from a different angle, right? And his jab landed in a room full of people hoping for the validation and the recognition of all their hard work from the past year hoping for acceptance and approval, right, into that rarefied air of being a Golden Globe winner. They were hoping to be justified, to be declared righteous by their work, right, To, to know that they belong, to all of a sudden have this confidence that they have a record that makes them fit for this elite group of actors. Last week, I introduced you uh, to a a guy named Ernest Becker. 
Um, and Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist, and he wrote a book called The Denial of Death, okay? And in that work, he coined his own terminology. And he, he most definitely wasn't a Christian, if you read him. But he wrote that he, he had observed in all of humanity, which what an anthropologist does, right? All of humanity, religious or irreligious, was thoroughly engaged in some kind of salvation strategy. That's the term he coined, right? In an effort to justify ourselves, he was saying, to convince ourselves that we have a righteous record. He was saying all humanity, though they do it in different ways, engages in some kind of salvation strategy. We're looking for something that will tell us that we're enough, right? That we have value, that we're worthy, that we're, we're beautiful, and that we're lovable. And sometimes you use morality and religion to do that in your life, right? This is how I know I'm better than those people, how I know I'm enough and approved and worthy because I do these things. And then sometimes parents look to the way they raise their children. And then sometimes husbands and wives, they look to their spouse and they say, because you love me, I know that I must be okay and have value. Or you might do it with your career. I know I have value because look at what I've achieved and what I've accomplished and what I've been able to produce. And you know, we laugh at the Golden Globe audience laughing along with Jim Carrey, and maybe for a moment we feel superior to them. Look at how shallow they are, you know. But listen, are you any better is what I'm asking. Or are you just looking to some other work of the law to justify your existence? to prove to yourself that you have value, that you're worthy and lovable. You know, Ernest Becker, he wasn't right about everything, but he was right that no matter how you do it, we are all looking for some kind of salvation strategy in our lives, and that is Paul's point. The default mode of our hearts is a search for righteousness in some performance, some conformity, some behavior, some activity. And let's keep moving on to the second term, justification. Paul wrote in verse 16 that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Or as we said earlier, you you could substitute the word righteous there. And it's a very interesting word that Paul has chosen to use here because with it, Paul left behind he left behind all the terminology from the ceremonial clean laws, right? And he exchanged it for a terminology from the courtroom to explain what Jesus actually accomplished for us. Now think about it. In other words, the terminology of cleansing, it's good terminology, right? But it would suggest that Jesus only came to wash away your sins. And don't get me wrong, that's very, very good. We need that. But by itself, that's not enough. I mean, that won't give you the record you need to be confident that you are absolutely fit for a relationship with God. It would put you back on the performance treadmill looking for something you can achieve or do or produce or to be anything to be assured that you're lovable, worthy, and accepted. By using the term justification, Paul was saying, Jesus came, now listen to this, this is what he's saying, Jesus came to completely change God's view of you in his courtroom. 
Several weeks ago, I heard the preacher Timothy Keller use an illustration to an illustration to explain this term justification. And when I first heard it, I thought, which I probably shouldn't think because he's a great preacher, but I thought, man, that's a bad illustration. I, I will not use anything like that. Um, and then several days later, I got into a fight, an argument, discussion uh, with my wife. And um, I can't even remember what it was about. Um, but afterward, I thought, okay, that illustration was genius. Um, I was just too slow and dull to get it the first time, right? And so I'm going to give you my version of his illustration, and I do have confidence that you are much sharper than I am, so you'll be able to catch it. But I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine a wife who's talked to her husband, and she says, I need you to be home tonight from work by 6.30 so that I can go out with my friends, right? And she's discussed that with him, he's agreed to it, And I want you to imagine that on this particular day, 6.30 comes and goes. And then 7 o'clock comes and goes. And then 7.30 comes and goes. And at 8 o'clock, she hears him pull into the driveway. And she meets him at the door, right? And he walks into the door, and she lets him have it. You know, you've... my. I've missed, you told me you would be home at 6.30, and now my friends had to leave without me, and the show started at 7.30, and I missed it, and you ruined my evening out, and maybe even my life, she might say. Um, <laughs> things escalate sometimes, but, um, but then I want you to imagine that the husband, right, he finally gets a chance to get a word in, right, and so he says, I am so, so sorry. I had every intention of being home at 6.30, but at 5.45, wouldn't you know it, the fire alarm went off in the office and set off the sprinkler system, and I turned around at my desk, and I saw smoke and flames, and so I ran out of the office, but I left my keys and my phone on my desk, and my phone was ruined, and as soon as they let us back into the building, I got my keys, and I rushed home in the hopes that you could salvage some of your night out. Um, Now, listen, here's what he's doing, and here's what you and I do all the time in our arguments. That's why I needed to have an argument in order to realize this, right? What was the man in that story doing? He was justifying his actions. He was saying, honey, I want you to see me from a different point of view. I want you to see me and my actions through a different lens. Here's what the doctrine of justification is about. God, I need you to see me from a different point of view. I need you to see me through a different lens. And what is that lens? That lens is Jesus. Right? God, look at me through Jesus and see me through the lens of Jesus' perfectly righteous record. Please hear me clearly. This distinction really, really matters. Justification doesn't change you. Right? The fact is, you are still a sinner. The guy in our little story, right, he was still late, and his wife's plans were still ruined. But justification changes the way you are seen. 
right? No longer through your successes or your failures or your performance or your abilities or your sincerity or or your whatever, but through the lens of Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. And Martin Luther, who we've been talking about a lot today, um, he coined a phrase to describe this justice. He said, simul justus et peccador, Latin phrase, simultaneously righteous and sinner. That's what it means to be justified. It changes the way you are seen. Still broken, still sinful, but simultaneously righteous. Still fallen and broken, but with absolute confidence that you have a record that makes you perfectly and completely fit for a relationship with God. Do you know what will happen when you are able to bring this terminology into your day-to-day life and practice? This spells the end to all the fear and anxiety in your life that is driving you to find your value, your worth, your acceptability, your beauty in what you do and accomplish. Paul wrote down in verse 19, you, you see this in verse 19, he wrote down that he died to the law. How did he die to the law? He died to getting his righteousness from the law. Because listen, justification means, means now that there is nothing, nothing you could ever do that would ever make God love you less than he does at this moment, if you believe this. I mean, here's this man, Jesus, in the Gospels. And a lot of people reject the teaching of Christianity, but they'll strangely say, but you should follow Jesus' example. Okay, are you kidding? (laughs) I don't want Jesus as an example. That's crushing, right? But to have Jesus as a Savior... The one who came to fulfill the law for you, to give you his perfect record of righteousness, that's freedom. That's freedom from all your striving to measure up. And it's also freedom in your life to fail and fail miserably sometimes. See, in your worst moment this past week, and you had one, and you're so ashamed about it that you you wouldn't mention it to anybody else. But in your worst, do you realize that in that moment, that God is looking at you through the lens of Jesus' righteousness. And in that worst moment of your life this past week, he saw you as the one who obeyed and loved perfectly all his life, who never once gave in to temptation, who always spoke the truth in love. In that moment, he looked at you and saw the one who fed the 5,000 and healed the blind and the lame, the one who never doubted his father's love for a moment. He saw you like that in your worst moment. To realize he sees you like that, it'll vanquish fear and anxiety in your life. But this also sets you free to really and truly joyfully delight in God himself. Look, Paul wrote in verse 19 that he died to the law, but he also wrote this right after it. So that he might live to God. I've heard people say often, it's a good thing God doesn't reveal all of our brokenness and sin to us at once because we couldn't take it. I would die of despair and and, and horror. And I think that's true probably, right? We are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But to be simul justus et peccator, 
simultaneously righteous and a sinner, that is to know that if you fully saw and realized how deeply God loves you, how perfectly He delights in you, He loves you even as He loves His own Son, Jesus. I mean, that's what Jesus uses that word, even as, in John 10, 23. If you saw that fully, your heart would burst for joy. Because it's true. You are also far more loved, far more deeply loved than you could have ever dreamed possible. And to find that would be to finally find the freedom to live to God in every area of your life and to delight in Him in every area of your life. Okay, last and third, let's talk about faith. Of all the terminology in this passage, many scholars would argue that faith is the main term in this passage. Right? It's Paul's main point that there's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. It ha- what he's saying is he's saying it has to be received. Right? And the only way to receive it is through faith. So what is faith? It's belief, it's trust, it's confidence, it's rest, right? It, faith is to stop working. It's to stop trying to get God to love you and to rest in the knowledge that He already loves you in His Son, Jesus. Rapidly, the culture around us is becoming post-Christian. You realize this. But there are still vestiges of Christianity that are hanging around and holding on. And because of that, many around us will say, yeah, sure, I believe in God. I believe in Him, right? And even I believe true things about Him. I believe in Jesus. I believe that He was the Son of God, that He died on the cross, that He was raised from the dead. But here's what I'm saying. You can believe all the right information about God without really believing Him, without really trusting Him, without really resting in Him. What is faith, and what would it look like for you to finally turn the corner in your life from believing in God to actually believing Him and finding rest? The end of verse 20, I think, is the clearest expression of what faith really is. Paul wrote, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. To turn the corner is to embrace the personal pronouns in the gospel. That it is to have trust and confidence that God loves you. That he gave himself for you, specifically, individually. That all the information about Christianity, that everything Jesus did... In his life, his death, and his resurrection, he did all of it for you, personally. It's to trust that his heart bursts with love for you. And to make you fit for a relationship with him, he was willing to give himself completely for you. You know, we'll get to this more in chapter 3, but many of you came into, into Christianity believing like that. But then you fell back underneath the law, You return to that default mode of your heart, and you're not living day to day by faith, but by your effort and your work and your performance. So here's what happens in your life. On your good days, you rise, and you rise with self-righteous pride to all those around you. 
And on your bad days, you sink in shame and despair. Right? Look, verses 17 through 21 They are meaty verses, and there's a lot in there that we haven't looked at this morning. And some of it's very hard to grasp. Even as one commentator honestly wrote in his book, these verses feel very obscure. Um, There's a lot in here that does feel obscure. And one of the reasons I think it feels like that is because Paul, he's, think about it, he's ramping up speed for where he is headed in this letter to the Galatians. And I'll put it to you like this. The question is this. It's great news that I'm seen through the lens of Jesus' righteousness, but how do I actually change? How then do I actually change in the day-to-day and start becoming righteous in my life? In other words, that's great news, but what does that mean for making any real, actual progress in the Christian life? And Paul's answer is going to be this, to go on living the same way you started, by faith. You become a Christian the moment you're justified, and you go on in the Christian life by living through your justification. Paul is talking about living the Christian life in these verses. Verse 19, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Verse 20, again, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And that language feels very strange, right? He's saying, I died, I live, but it's no longer I who live. It it is kind of weird. Um, So what do we do with that? I'm reading right now through Herman uh, Melville's masterpiece, Moby Dick, and there's this place where he writes, and you just go look up some of these weird words. But anyway, he says, Methinks my body is but the lees of my inner being. In fact, take my body who will. Take it, I say, it is not me. Or maybe you've heard the story of St. Augustine, right, after he'd become a Christian. Prior to his conversion, I think in today's terms we would have said St. Augustine was a sex addict, right? And after becoming a Christian, he was approached by one of his former lovers, and she, he paid no attention to her, so she shouted after him. She said, Augustine, it is I. And he turned around, and he replied was, his reply was, yes but it is not I, right? See, this is, there was a, I live, but I died. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, this is all about living through your justification. You have a new identity is what Paul is saying. Take my body because it's not me. Yes, but it is not I. How do you not only become a Christian by faith, and we're getting near the end here, but how do you live by faith? and live through your new identity in Jesus. I'm going to give you an example from my life, um, and hopefully you'll be able to connect the dots on your own because I want to end here. Um, But I'm a preacher, so every Sunday I I have to get up here and preach to you. (laughs) And and I deal every Sunday with some degree of nervousness in doing this. Um, Like everyone else in this room, it's very easy for me to start thinking, this is how I'm going to prove my value my significance, my worth, right? It's easy to think this is how I can get an identity for myself by striving and performing and accomplishing by doing a good job, right? And so about six years ago, I wrote something down on a little piece of paper that I tacked to the wall in my office, and every Sunday morning, I read it. 
because I'm trying to deal with that, right, in my life. And so this is it. See, it's got this little hole there. Um, it's true. Um, anyway, here's, here's what, I, what I wrote down for myself to read. This job is not my life. Your approval of me is not my life. Right? Whether you invite your friends or not is not my life. Even what I think about myself is not my life. My security, confidence, acceptance, joy, fulfillment, worth will never be found in these things. My life is hidden with Christ and God. I am accepted and approved of because of Jesus. I am more loved than I could ever hope, dream, or imagine. In God's eyes, I'm already approved. And my security, confidence, acceptance, joy, fulfillment, worth is untouchable because it is grounded in the person and work of Jesus. Herman Melville, take my body who will. It's not me. What is he saying? He's saying my true identity is untouchable. Right? St. Augustine, yes, but it is not I. He's saying I have a new identity in Jesus. And see, when I'm reminded of these things, that's where I find my freedom. Freedom to fail in front of all of you. And I've done it a number of times. Freedom to, as Paul wrote, live to God. You know, we begin with faith, but we go on living by faith. That's how you're going to make any real progress in the Christian life. That's how you deal That's how you need to deal with all your problems, all your struggles, all all your temptations in your life. It's how your successes never become fuel for pride. And it's how your failures never become fuel for shame and despair in your life. It's by learning to live through your justification by faith in the midst, in the midst of life, in any and every circumstances, to rest moment by moment in Jesus, the Son of God, who gave himself for you, who loved and loves you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Galatians and how even as he is reminding them and reminded them of the gospel, that through your Spirit, you remind us of the gospel as well. Father, we pray that this good news of our identity in Jesus, we pray that you would teach us how to learn it, how to live in it by faith, day in and day out, moment by moment, even tomorrow morning and this week. Father, we pray that we would rest in the joyous good news that our righteousness before you does not come through our performance or conformity or our behavior, but it comes to us through Jesus. And in him, we have a perfectly righteous record. Father, we pray that that would set us free, that it would fill our hearts with joy. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.